If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of June 18, 2023. The podcast with boxes full of unpresidential records. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's outblanceolate the news of the bogus. From the start of the pandemic, we've been discussing the good, the bad, and the ugly of COVID and of COVID countermeasures enforced on people by their governments. That latter part got several episodes of this podcast and other videos on the channel demonetized or even banned entirely. Now, so many of those are finally being acknowledged as true after all. Public health officials went against the science while they told you to listen to the science and made one pseudoscientific claim after another, including about very disruptive policies such as lockdowns and mask mandates. I don't know how I should feel about this New York Post story, happy that it's finally being acknowledged or chagrined that it's giving them cover. Just listen to this crap, quote, To be clear, Public health officials were not wrong for making recommendations based on what was known at the time. That's understandable. You go with the data you have. No, they were wrong because they refused to change their directives in the face of new evidence. But they weren't going with what was known at the time. We were, and we were right a hell of a lot more than they were. It is good, though, that they're condemning the censorship of opposing opinions and the CDC weaponizing the research. They cover 10 ways they misled Americans. I'll let you read them in detail. I'll just hit the high notes. The first is natural immunity, which was pretty much known from the start to be superior to vaccine immunity. That isn't true with all diseases. Measles, for example, is a notable exception. But for any coronavirus-based disease, natural immunity was high, and this was known before the vaccine came out. Sadly, though, people were fired for not being vaccinated, even though they had antibodies that made them immune. Then there was the whole mask fiasco, the one that Fauci went back and forth on. There was always the chance that masks might keep a sick person from transmitting it by breathing, but it wouldn't stop someone from getting it, and there are a lot of other ways to get it as well. And what does it say when CDC Director Rochelle Walensky blew off the Oxford Review showing they had no significant impact as flawed because it was based on randomized controlled studies, which are the gold standard of science? School closures were never going to work, as we said from the start, because it just never seemed like kids were susceptible to getting it or transmitting it. One thing I'll admit I didn't see coming was increases in myocarditis among the vaccinated, increases that weren't seen in unvaccinated people who got COVID. It still hasn't been definitively linked to the vaccine, but the fact that we weren't even allowed to talk about it is inexcusable. Oh, and the boosters. Okay, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were designed to be two-shot vaccines, but while that was shown to be good with high-risk Americans and young, healthy people, the boosters never gave any real benefit. And it just got silly after the virus mutated to a strain the vaccine couldn't deliver immunity for, and the response of public health officials was to get as many as six boosters. Like, what was that gonna do? 
Even when Moderna updated theirs to include the Omicron spike protein, it had been too late, as the virus had mutated into yet later strains. And of course, I was never going to do much anyway without also including the hinge proteins as we covered, because Omicron kept the spikes retracted for a much longer period of time, establishing an infection before the vaccine could work. In fact, the virus has done exactly what we said at the beginning was the most probable outcome. It's becoming more transmissible, but less virulent, and is on its way to becoming yet another cold virus. And then there's how the lab leak theory was completely suppressed. Although a zoonotic transfer was always the more likely purely from a prior probability standpoint, lab leaks do happen, and it was always worth asking the question and investigating it. And yet, everyone who even said, hey, why don't we find out, was bullied into silence, especially by Fauci. Finally, something we didn't really talk about, but the whole thing about long COVID turned out to be a complete myth. Only about 3% of COVID patients had residual symptoms lasting 12 weeks. The article pointing out all of this is good, except it ends with another bit of mealy-mouthedness. A mea culpa by those who led us astray would be a first step to rebuilding trust. Tell you what, we'll accept a mea culpa when the main players behind these lies are behind bars. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. If there's one thing the recent history of this podcast has established about me, it's that I suck at predicting what psychopaths are going to do. I contemplated on this podcast why the Trump classified documents fiasco had seemed to have fizzled. Then the Joe Biden classified document scandal came out. So I thought, okay, that's it, right? Now that we know that, whatever problem it was, with Biden it was far worse than Trump, who was president at the time, whereas Biden was just VP or even a senator. That's gotta be it, right? I mean, at that point, the only way you'd prosecute Trump is if you're committing a blatantly political prosecution of the opposition leader, something we've always criticized Banana Republics for doing. And it would be so stinking apparent to the rest of the world that it would completely discredit Biden and everyone involved with and who supports the prosecution. I mean, no matter how bad they are, they'd never be that obvious. Right? Yeah, you see where I'm going with this. You've heard the news. 
They indicted him on 37 felony counts, including the typical add-on offenses of obstruction and making false statements. But some of this is really important, so pay attention. I'm not going to go into the indictment in detail. You can use the links in the show notes to read it yourself. But a lot of the big issues center around his former aide, Walt Nauda, who was seen on CCTV moving boxes at Mar-a-Lago and whom they label as Trump's co-conspirator. Yes, the press has been passing around pics of tons of boxes all around Mar-a-Lago, a ballroom, a bathroom, all sorts of things, with no indication on what's actually in them. We know there were only 102 classified documents seized in the raid. The other has to do with an ongoing military operation, at the time probably long obsolete by now. Information is redacted, but pulling from other sources, it seems the country in question is Iran. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley had claimed publicly that he had to stop Trump from taking military action against Iran. The document in question, according to Trump, proves it was just the opposite. It was Milley who had a plan of attack for Iran, and Trump nixed it. No one else saw the document, not even the writer he was speaking to. He just said he shouldn't show it to him and not to get too close. By the way, according to reports so far, prosecutors do not actually have the document in question. That might make the charge difficult to prove. According to the quotes of an audio recording, Trump said, quote, He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have this big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look, this was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. What they're using against him is when he said, quote, Except it is, like, highly confidential. See, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. So this sounds like a bit of equivocation. There's a difference between the president declassifying documents when he exits the White House, as every single one of them does, for eventual inclusion into their presidential libraries, and information in the document being declassified so it can be revealed publicly. Every time you see reporting on this, Keep that distinction in mind, and you'll see how they confuse the issue. Also interesting is how they don't seem to want to report the fact that Trump stopped a war with Iran. Now, here's the really important part. A lot of this is based on statements made to Trump Attorney 1, whom we know to be Evan Corcoran, which means they should be privileged attorney-client communications. There's an exception for when the defendant is acting in furtherance of a crime or fraud, but they're basing that on the obstruction charge, which, again, is one of those charges they love to tack on. Now, think about what this would mean if this is allowed to stand. This means that, from then on, when you or I get charged with something, they can go to our attorney to get privileged information. If he refuses to play ball, just tack on an obstruction charge, and he'd have to speak up or even just asking the kind of questions detailed in the indictment, which is the kind of questions any defendant would ask their attorney. So, what, you ask your lawyer about the legal consequences of certain actions, which is something that people have the right to know, and that means they get to spy on your attorney and use it against you? This would mean nothing less than the total and complete 
and of attorney-client privilege. A lot more people should be raising a stink about this because it goes way beyond Trump. It threatens every single one of us. And it doesn't end there. In another aspect of the case, a senior prosecutor told Nauda's attorney that his application for judgeship may go a little bit smoother if he gets his client to play ball. Blatant prosecutorial misconduct. And former Trump attorney Tim Parlatori told CBS he was stunned by the prosecutorial misconduct going on in the grand jury room. Quote, I was really stunned by what I saw in the grand jury room by the conduct of the prosecutors. They made many attempts to try to get privileged communications. They would ask me about conversations with my client. They would make improper references to the jury, trying to mislead them about that. At one point, it got to the level where they're asking me this again, and then they would turn to the grand jury and say, So you're refusing to provide this information? No, I'm not refusing to provide it. The ethical rules prohibit me. Even if the answer to this question is helpful, I'm not allowed to give it. And I turned to the jury and said, And she knows it. She knows that this is an improper question. This then led to an exchange where she tried saying, It could be waived. If the president's so cooperative, why won't he waive privilege? And that majorly crosses the line. Quote, If it happened in a trial court, the judge would have immediately stopped everything, probably declared a mistrial, and the attorney who willfully does that type of thing would potentially face discipline. I'll reiterate my point of view that if prosecutors feel they have to cheat to win, that must mean they can't win based on the law and the facts, which means reasonable doubt. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Other big news... A whistleblower has alleged that Biden was paid $5 million by an executive of the Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma Holdings as part of a bribery scheme. The FBI had generated an FD-1023 form from a confidential human source that alleged direct bribery of the then-vice president from a source the FBI calls highly credible, detailing multiple meetings with the top Burisma executive. Although the form isn't classified, the FBI has been refusing to show it to Congress. In fact, the FBI denied it even existed until congressional officials told them they already had a copy and just needed to verify it. The Foreign National also claims to have 15 audio recordings of conversations with Hunter Biden and two with Joe Biden, although their existence hasn't yet been separately confirmed. 
The source has apparently confirmed that Joe Biden is the big guy mentioned in those emails in Hunter's laptop. The form is dated June 30, 2020, which means that, if the information had been made public, it almost certainly would have affected the outcome of the election. According to the source, the Burisma executive discussed Hunter's role on the board. The source asked why the executive needs his or her advice if Hunter's on the board. The executive basically said, because Hunter is dumb. When the source asked about paying the Bidens $50,000, the executive replied, It's not $50,000, it's $5 million. $5 million for one Biden, $5 million for the other Biden. The source apparently believes that these payments were made, but said they were moved through so many bank accounts that investigators wouldn't be able to unravel it for at least 10 years. Biden has acknowledged that, when he was VP, he successfully pressured Ukraine to fire Prosecutor Viktor Shokin, who was investigating Burisma, by threatening to withhold $1 billion in aid from the U.S. Biden told then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, quote, I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here in, I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired, and they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Of course, when Donald Trump tried to put pressure on Zelensky to launch an investigation into all of that, the Democrats and the press hit the ceiling. The FBI finally provided a heavily redacted version of the form to Congress. Meanwhile, there are apparently more FD-1023 forms to be accessed. We'll see what happens next. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to ulcerate this week's Biggest Bogani Matter. And this week, it goes to U.S. Attorney Karen Gilbert, a federal prosecutor in the Trump Mar-a-Lago case who, as it turns out, has a history of misconduct. She's serving as deputy to special counsel Jack Smith, but back in 2009, she was in the U.S. Attorney's Office Narcotics Vision in Miami, prosecuting Dr. Ali Shagan for prescribing opioids as part of the federal government's war on pain patients. Spoiler alert! He was acquitted, and prosecutors, for their misconduct, were ordered to pay him $600,000. Not only did she, along with fellow U.S. attorneys Sean Cronin and Andrea Hoffman, withhold materially important evidence from the defense, 
She had attempted to manipulate two witnesses in the case to entrap his attorney, David Marcus. The prosecutors had arranged for them to record telephone calls with the defense attorney, another violation of attorney-client privilege. The scheme was revealed when one of the witnesses on the stand admitted to being a part of it. According to U.S. Circuit Court Judge Alan Gold, her behavior was, quote, so profoundly disturbing that it raises troubling questions about the integrity of those who wield enormous power over the people they prosecute. She was forced to retire from her position. And now she's back, apparently never having left their employ at all. Former senior Trump advisor and federal prosecutor Cash Patel called Gilbert, quote, one of the most corrupt prosecutors to ever come out of the Southern District of Miami. And as we covered two segments ago, there's been the same kind of prosecutorial misconduct in the current case. Imagine that. Of the 2009 incident, the Justice Department said the episode was, quote, deeply regrettable. Deeply regrettable? She still works there! FEC records also reveal that she donated money to Biden and the Biden Action Fund for the 2020 election cycle, as well as to the DNC and Obama previously. My God, how much more evidence could we possibly want to show that this is nothing more than a political show trial? It's exactly the kind of prosecution of an opposition candidate we criticize Banana Republics for. Hey, New rule, in addition to what we said at the end of that other segment, any prosecutor who engages in prosecutorial misconduct has to serve the same sentence the defendant would have if convicted. So all of that makes Karen Gilbert this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's emblematize this week's Idiot And this week it goes to the U.S. Patent Office, who apparently is wanting more patent trolls. In the annals of stupid patent tricks, we've seen all kinds of things being patented, including natural ideas like the podcasting patent, and really broad ones like the patent on elliptic curves, which cover a lot of our modern cybersecurity, so they can then go to all these companies and shake them down. It got so bad that in 2013, a process called IPR, or Interparties Review, was instigated to try and put a stop to it. 
It allows almost anyone to challenge a bad patent before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAB, to see if it ever should have been granted in the first place. It's far from perfect, but it's the least the Patent Office could do, considering that bad patents can stifle innovation for decades. The patent trolls even tried taking it to the Supreme Court, who ruled against them 7-2. But now, the Patent Office is walking that back, limiting who can raise complaints to the PTAB, in a rule change that seems deliberately worded to be as confusing as possible, they're adding restrictions like those on certain for-profit entities. Which ones? That's not at all clear. Check it out, quote, To curb the potential for abusive filings, the USPTO is considering changes that would limit institution on filings by for-profit, non-competitive entities that in essence seek to shield the actual real parties in interest and privies from statutory estoppel provisions. Clear as mud, right? In fact, I guess you could say it's patently absurd. Okay, sorry about that one. But here's the really bad one, quote, Recognizing the important role the USPTO plays in encouraging and protecting innovation by individual inventors, startups, and under-resourced innovators who are working to bring their ideas to market, the office is considering limiting the impact of AIA post-grant proceedings on such entities by denying institution when certain conditions are met. So, if the patent office decides they're under-resourced, you can challenge their patent. Of course, the trolls always prevent themselves as individuals with few resources trying to start up a new company, but they never are. None of this should matter. A bad patent is a bad patent. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation is challenging this. They wrote, USPTO Director Kathy Vidal has already tried to walk back responsibility for these rules. She said in Congress last month that the rules giving stakeholders a chance to shape the rules. But the only stakeholders who seem to have had a hand here are patent trolls and large patent holders. Many patent trolls would be exempt from IPRs altogether. The USPTO would prohibit anyone from challenging the patents of small entities and under-resourced inventors. But it's trivially easy for even the most litigious patent trolls to portray themselves as small inventors. It happens all the time and the USPTO rules buy into this sham. Many inventors are patent attorneys who have learned to game the system. They haven't invented anything other than patents. Patent trolls that have sued hundreds of small businesses and even public transportation systems, including Shipping and Transit LLC and various Lee Rothschild entities, have claimed to be inventor-owned businesses. If these rules were in force, it's not clear that EFF would have been able to protect the podcasting community by fighting and ultimately winning a patent challenge against Personal Audio LLC. Personal Audio claimed to be an inventor-owned company that was ready to charge patent royalties against podcasters large and small. EFF crowdfunded a patent challenge and took out the Personal Audio patent after a five-year legal battle that included a full IPR process and multiple appeals. It's an absolute fraud that the ones challenging the patents are the abusers. It's always been the trolls we've had to worry about, and they're far more destructive because in each and every case, they'd be granted a 20-year monopoly on an invention they have no intention of introducing. And if there are any abusers of IPR, they're not enough to make any difference. 
Last year, the patent office only invalidated 132 out of over 3.78 million patents and partially invalidated another 218. It was so small an amount, they couldn't even show it in a pie chart. The patent system has always been massively imbalanced in favor of patent owners over challengers. The IPR was a tiny step in the right direction. Apparently, under Biden, the patent office thinks that even that's going too far. So all of that makes the U.S. Patent Office this week's Idiot wraps up this look at me now i'm wearing a cardboard belt edition of the bogosity podcast i hope you enjoyed it if you did please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion subscribe at patreon or subscribe star and you can listen early and ad free thank you for listening until next time here's a quote from fritz Machloop. If we did not have a patent system, it would be irresponsible on the basis of our present knowledge of its economic consequences to recommend instituting one. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.